You are listening to the Legal Design Podcast. My name is Nina Toivonen. And I am Henna Tolvanen. This is Legal Talk Out of the Box. In this episode, we talk about legal problem solving through design thinking and the differences between legal and design research. Our guest is an expert in this topic, Jose Torres Varela, who currently works as a partner in Lexia Abogados in Bogota, Colombia, but has previously done research about legal design as a fellow in the Legal Design Lab in Stanford Law School. Welcome to our podcast, Jose. Hello, Nina and Hena. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me to the podcast. Thank you for joining us, Jose. What would you like to tell about yourself to our audience? Uh, what would I like? So, well, I'm from Colombia. That's probably the most important thing that I want the audience to, <laughs> to know. Uh, I've been working in legal design for about nine or ten years now, I think, oh. before it was oh, called wow. legal design. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and and it's it's very exciting to see, at least in Colombia and probably worldwide, but in Colombia, we're really starting to get a a lot of interest around legal design, not only in the private sector, but in the government sector as well. As for me, I think I've, I've had a, a very varied work experience. I've worked also as an attorney at Facebook. Mm-hmm. I've been the first legal design counsel of a local bank in Colombia. I've worked at Scotting Arts in, the, in London and, and the WTO in Switzerland. And I also do a lot of teaching, which I, which I enjoy very very much and and all of those experiences have really informed the way that i view legal design that sounds great and you have such a long background with legal design that's amazing uh jose how did you get interested in legal design in the first place so i got interested in design before legal design was a thing and uh, a, a while ago in 2010 i arrived uh, to london to work at a law firm called scaling arps and I started, and because of some, some good friends that I have, uh, they started telling, uh, showing me around design exhibits, the, the Design Museum in London, the, the V&A, the Tate. And I started also going to the exhibitions by the students, for instance, in Central St. Martin or, or the London College of Arts. And, and that really got me interested in design. And then I read a, a great book, which I cherish very much, called Glimmer by Warren Berger which is about design thinking in general. And when I read the book, I completely fell in love with the subject of design. And I started reading everything that I could and, and thinking about, and, and also thinking a lot about how could I bring this skill set to my practice back then, which was international arbitration, both, both investment and, and commercial. Uh, so legal design wasn't a thing back then. It wasn't even a, it didn't even have a, a name. Uh, but that's how I got started, and and it's it worked really well. I, I started going to a bunch of service design jams in London, to hackathons by IDEO and General Assembly. I started attending a, as many courses as I could in writing, interior design, experience design, uh, photography, a lot of things. And then I started playing around with how I could use those techniques. For instance, how could I use storyboarding for litigation mm, that's uh, great. Or, ha- or how could I use brainstorming uh, techniques basically to come up with better arguments or different frames when I was brainstorming a legal question uh, uh, diving into storytelling for litigation which is which is very important 
of course, gra bringing graphic design into presentations. Uh, and bit by bit, I started incorporating different design techniques into my legal work. I started to stand out in the firm, fortunately, and did very, very well in the firm. And that's how I got started. And then, so after playing a lot with that and really falling in love with the design movement, I came back to Colombia in 2012. And in 2013, I was hired by a local university, University Sergio Arboleda, to create the first center for innovation in law in Latin America. And I think it was probably one of the first in the world. And I started teaching design thinking for lawyers, basically play, doing the same thing that I, would do, that I was doing at the firm, but trying to, to teach that to students. And we would play around, for instance, with the business models of legal tech startups or law firms, and then doing like design thinking exercises with the business model canvas. I, I, I was fortunate to, to attend one of Alex Foster Walters, the creator of the Vitas model, model Canvas workshop uh, in 2011 before he was famous. Um, and he was already incorporating design techniques in, into, the, into the way that they were teaching the business model canvas. So I did that in Colombia. And that's how I got started, really. And probably uh, we opened up the, the center probably at the same time that Margaret opened up the, the legal design lab at Stanford. Um, and, and I started to become part of the community because I tweeted what I did in my classes and I translated my syllabus and the exercises. And that's how I got involved very early in, into the legal design community. And then uh, I came across Elena Hapios and George Seidel's work on proactive law. So I shoot an email to George and to Elena. They were very kind to respond. I invited them to Colombia. They actually came to Colombia and we did a couple of workshops with them. Oh, wow. Um, uh, yeah, and th this was fantastic. I think that was in 2014. They introduced me afterwards to the IACCM, now the World Commerce and Contracting, to Stefania. I did a legal design jam with Stefania, probably one of the first and the first in Latin America for sure. Um, and then I just continued working on that, on that basically like learning all I could about design and design thinking and then figuring out how could I incorporate that into my teaching and into my, my areas of practice of law. Such an interesting journey, and it sounds like that you have done a lot when it comes to legal design and changing the legal world. That's great. Do you ever miss being a traditional lawyer? <laughs> <laughs> I do. So in, in the firm, um, so I work at Lexi Abogados. It's our family firm with my dad and my brother. And I do, my, my area of corporate law practice is actually called legal design. I, I don't do regular law. Okay. I mean, regular law in the traditional sense that I don't send like traditional legal documents anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and I just incorporate design techniques to my, I've been incorporating design techniques into my practice, even when I just have to do like normal legal opinions. So yeah. I don't, like for me, there's no division anymore between traditional law and legal design. I just blended in, blended them completely into the way that I practice law really. That's great. Who are your typical clients? What kind of um, cases you have done recently as a legal sure. designer in your firm? Sure. So recently I've been doing a lot of work on legal design and crypto, which I'm very mm -hmm. excited because we need new ways of explaining what crypto, how like uh, cryptocurrencies and crypto assets work to Indeed, local yeah. audiences in Latin America. 
uh, and making sure they under, they understand the volatility and the risks and but that they also that they are also a very interesting uh, asset class. So I've been doing a lot of work on that. Uh, I've recently dug into like legal design and public policy, especially with regulatory sandboxes in the financial sector. I, I've done a a couple of workshops for the local financial regulator into, into that area. And recently with a, a good friend of mine, we did a workshop on legal design and regulatory policy applied to open banking, which was very, very interesting. And then I have a, a bunch of corporate clients, big corporations who just want to like really redefine the way that they work. So for instance, I work closely with a, a big agricultural company called Alianza Team. We redesigned all of their contracting templates, but they also wanted to change the legal culture of the legal department. So mm -hmm. we did a lot of work with that. Uh, we've done that actually with a company from Norway, uh, which is called Yara. Okay. A big agro agrochemical company. I'm, I've worked with Telefonica, which is a, a big telecoms company, a couple of smaller fintech companies right now. Um, I'm very excited about legal design and crypto, really. Mm -hmm. uh, and just, I mean, not only like figuring out how to better explain that world to users, but also I'm very passionate about just bringing like design techniques into, into how we think about legal problems and how we do legal reasoning and how we do research and stuff. Yeah. And that's the topic of today's episode, actually. Um, <laughs> how to do legal research through design thinking. And we also think that that, that is actually one of the fundamental topics when dis discussing how to how to bring law to the next level and how to combine these two worlds of law, legal, and, and the design into solving humans' problems. And, and problem solving is actually the core idea of legal science methods actually as well. Um, but there are a lot of challenges related to this. As said, there are two cultures colliding Uh, two different kind of ways to to see the world and, and solve problems. Um, so Jose, could you tell us how the ways of researching differ both in legal and design disciplines and and what are the characteristics of these two approaches in your view? Sure, and, and that's an area that I'm very passionate about. So when I, when I was doing my, my fellowship at Stanford, I came across a a discipline in human-computer interaction called research through design, which is all about exploring the future. Mm. Uh, and basically what they do in research through design is to create prototypes and concepts or different artifacts just for the sake of exploration. And I think that there's tons of applications for that uh, in the legal world. So I'll, I'll give you two very concrete examples. The first one, uh, I'm working actually right now with the judiciary of the Dominican Republic Mm -hmm. to create a center for, or and we just launched a center for innovation in access to justice. And the things that we are exploring right now is how can we create new types of products or services to meet users' needs in the justice sector. And we basically have to create them first, test them out, and then uh, roll them out, which is very different from how lawyers think. Lawyers usually like to study something that already exists. But if we don't have something that's great that already exists, we have to create it in order to study it. Yeah. So we're basically creating through prototypes, new types of products and services. And I think that access to justice research through should definitely go into that direction. We just need to figure out 
new ways of servicing users' needs. So that's one, one concrete example. Another one which I'm very passionate about uh, is all of like blockchain applications and smart contracts. And at the firm, we have a, a thing called the Crypto Lab in which we joined uh, with a blockchain, a pioneering blockchain company called GoChain. And we created a lab for local companies to experiment and create prototypes around blockchain and prototype concrete use cases to see if blockchain is or is not the answer to a given problem. Right now we're working very heavily in the insurance industry and we're doing a lot of prototypes with Seguros Mundial, a local insurer, around how we could create uh, smart legal contracts for automating insurance claims. And we just basically have to build it first mm-hmm. and then study how it would work in the real world through simulations and prototypes and then figuring out how we're going to roll them. So in that area, for instance, in smart contracts, the traditional legal way to study this would be to like go through legal doctrine, go through jurisprudence, figure out would be what would be the traditional legal principles applicable to that but it will be theoretical. Mm-hmm. And usually when doing that type of legal research, researchers don't come up with very concrete use cases. What we're doing in the crypto lab is doing legal research through design where we are just creating the use case, prototype the whole experience, figuring out how it would work, figuring out what would be the reg- legal and regulatory ramifications of creating a smart contract in insurance and then taking it from there. Yeah, that makes sense. So um, if I understood correctly, the the importance is that also law and legal research will look forward instead of going backwards when trying to solve problems. Yes, especially for the problems. I mean, for many types of problems actually lend themselves to this approach. I don't think that all of the problems lend themselves to that. The other area where, where I see tons of design methods being brought into like the legal world are or is basically regulation mm. and, and the work yeah. that I'm doing is around for instance prototyping regulation not only making the regulation like simpler but also like prototyping or, or doing design research ethnographic research going into the field to figure out like how the stakeholders behave what type of behaviors do they have why they can or might not be able to comply with certain regulatory requirements and then prototype regulation test it out before actually yeah. rolling it out. So I think that's another area where the traditional like legal research methods will benefit significantly mm-hmm. from bringing design methods into, into the policy world, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I think in, in the legal world, when you do a re- legal research, you, you can, as a researcher, you can, you can give recommendations as delay verenda, like, what the law should be like based on your research, but it never goes that far that you really actually write a new piece of legal text and uh, or, or get to like test out how that kind of regulation would work in, in action or in a kind of a laboratory <laughs> environment. So yeah, that's really um, insightful. Um, but to, to put some critical uh, thinking into this, which is probably a more the kind of the normal lawyer approach. So uh, we lawyers are thought to only acknowledge the normative information like from, from legal 
sources, such as from laws and regulations and so on. Um, but the design approach, however, it, it seems to be in odds, odds with this basic doctrine of laws that you only can accept certain kind of um, authoritative information. But in, in the design way of do, doing, you can actually use any information that has some sort of significance in the problem solving. So I think this would be my first question that arises from, from, from this conflict of ways of doing that. How do we address this? Um, what, what is the right data source in, in solving problem solving when we uh, combine legal to design research? No, yeah. I, I don't see attention really. Mm -hmm. and, and the way, I mean, how I see it in my mind basically is that of course, when you're doing legal research, and depending on your legal system, of course, you really have to make sure that you understand the hierarchy of laws and the laws that are applicable to the given situation. What I think that design brings to the table is that it gives you a new way to look at the facts mm -hmm. uh, and to collect different sets of facts. So if you're doing policy making, for instance, uh, usually what lawyers do is basically just imagine, uh, imagine how they view the, the future, their theory of change, but the way that they collect evidence in order to support that use case is usually very limited. If, if we just bring design research into the picture, we'll just have new ways of assessing facts. The other area where I see that they complement uh, very heavily is just in the way that you can use design thinking to create, not only to create better types of choices in policy, mm -hmm. Uh, and actually to make decisions better because it's different to make a decision on the basis of a given assumption uh, rather than actually making that decision afterwards you test the assumption. We don't have a way of testing assumptions, only legal assumptions basically, but not factual assumptions in law, at least when we're doing policy work. So design actually brings uh, with, with all of the prototyping techniques a, a very neat set of tools to test uh, those assumptions. And when you're thinking just of advising into a client, Basically, I, I see legal design as a, as a complement, not only in the way that you're communicating with your client, in the way that you're trying to understand what's the different uh, needs that your client, the company, and the different stakeholders have. Um, and I also think that just bringing different types of tools that allow you to reframe the questions can actually make you uh, do better analysis. And the tools as well. So for instance, just being much more visual, I, I use a, a way of organizing st argument structures called the pyramid principle developed by, by McKinsey in the 70s or the 60s. And, and basically you can use tools like Mural, which are very designerly uh, mm -hmm. tools uh, to just prototype arguments, lay them out very visually, figuring out what you need to test or what would need to be true to make better legal analysis. So I, I don't see the tension that much if you understand which is the tool that you need to, that you have to do for what. And, and to your point, actually, on the tension, in, in Colombia, I joke a lot saying that I'm seeing a lot of legal design without legal. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> people just like relying very heavily on, on design and, and trying to make information look much better and nicer and easier to communicate. But you also have to do like very strong legal analysis and simplifying yeah. information <laughs> or simplifying or finding the right legal problem. That's a skill set that comes from legal and, and you have to be a very good attorney in order to get it right. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel that in legal design, we're not discussing that much 
the importance of making sure you actually understand as a lawyer what you need to do and then how you bring design techniques to that. So in that part, it's where I see the tension. But in terms of how you use different tools, if mm -hmm. you understand what goes into what, I think that they complement themselves very, uh, yeah. very neatly. Yeah. I'm, I'm just imagining a case where I'm talking, telling about legal design to a lawyer who has never heard of it. And then I'm uh, suggesting to try out design techniques to solve legal problems. And, and then the answer is like, yeah, but you still need to apply the law and, and read the law book. And that doesn't give you options. So I think the challenge is often that you have to really put the designer lenses on and see what the law kind of, what it has inside of it, like what made it to to be like it is and how, what kind of behavior it does create or, it, um, and, or what, what is the kind of desired behavior the law wants to create and then to, to see how to align with that intention with the design techniques. And, and that's, I think for many lawyers, it, it requires that you learn away from the old ways, look, ways of looking at the law when you start to implement legal design ways of doing. Cool. In order to, to actually like fight a little bit that cultural tendency of lawyers of not bringing new design ways, uh, one thing that I've done very significantly in, in different in other places where I've worked is that I, I never mentioned the term legal design. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, okay. I'm just saying, yeah, like, exactly. Let's, I have let's visualize this Exactly. Yeah. You say, why, why don't we just use post-its and let's try to visualize how this argument is going to look like in the brief or in the legal opinion. Yeah. Uh, or, or when someone's writing, you can just say like, I'm sorry, I just had a hard time understanding your writing. Why don't we just figure out how to make it mm -hmm. a little bit simpler and think that the person that's going to consume that legal opinion is not a lawyer. Yeah. Uh, without saying let's let's be user centered or start mm -hmm. start using the the jargon. Um, for me, that's been very powerful in just getting lawyers to accept a new way of working. I, mm -hmm. I think you were going to say something on on that front as well, Hannah. Yeah, I think it's important, and there has been a lot of discussion, at least in Finland, that the term legal design uh, it brings well, it might bring a wrong idea to lawyers because when we think of design, we traditionally think of like fashion or scissors <laughs> or cell phones or well, Alvar Alta really, in Finland Alvar, yeah. exactly, something <laughs> super concrete and then someone says legal design and people go like huh what does it have to do with legal I mean you put together fashion and legal or mobile phones and legal and they don't understand that design can actually mean design thinking yeah and new ways of many. working through that. But uh, what I've learned, I think that um, it's easier for lawyers to understand what legal design is all about when we give out concrete examples. And Jose, you already mentioned uh, some clients that you work with and some projects. But could you maybe tell more about the projects where, where you have applied design thinking into well, legal work and legal research. Sure. So my, my, my fellowship proposal at Stanford was, was all about how do we make new types of labor courts? 
for cleaning ladies in Colombia. Mm. Okay. Um, that was my research. Uh, like your your and it was posed as a as a very as as a very academic type of research proposal, uh, thinking about how we can just create better types of services. And for that proposal in specific, although I, I mean, it's, it was proposed as, a, as an academic from a, from a legal perspective, I used just a bunch of design techniques. I had to go into the field, figuring out how, like that they, I mean, what it takes for a cleaning lady in Colombia to actually go to court. What are all of the issues that she doesn't understand? The fact yeah. that she might not have uh, a smartphone to download an app, for instance. Uh, I know that in many countries that's that's not an issue, but in Colombia, even though you might have a smartphone, the smart the smartphone might not have enough uh, data uh, or enough yeah. capacity to actually. And, and you know, people will always prefer to download Instagram, TikTok, or YouTube than an app for <laughs> access to justice. That's true. <laughs> um, so I had to do a, a lot of traditional. A design research to understand what were the requirements of the product or service that I had to come up with, what would be the, the constraining design principles. Um, and the fact that I also had to reframe the question. And my, my initial question was, how do I improve the court system? That was the wrong question after doing design research. The question turned out to be just, how do we create a new type of service? And what I ended up creating was a chatbot um, and I know that chatbots, when I say chatbots today, they are very, they sound very obvious, but I did this research in 2016. Mm -hmm. uh, chatbots yeah. had just come out, which was a, a chatbot, not a web app. It had to be text-based that would explain to the cleaning ladies her rights and obligations, and also to the employer as well. When I was doing the research, I also found that a bunch of people did want to comply with labor obligations, but they were just hard to understand. And, and, and all of the premises of the court system was people don't want to comply the law, but there's also the case of people who want to comply with the law. They just have no clue how to comply with the law. <laughs> so actually the chat yeah, had great to serve. Point. <laughs> yeah, and it happened to me as well. I'm, I'm a, I think of myself as a very good lawyer, but employment and social security in Colombia, it's not my area of practice. So we, I designed the chatbot to make sure that it meet both users' needs and that it explained the rights and obligations to the cleaning lady, for instance, but also to the employer. And we, I did it in a way that the system recorded every time that I did the cash payments, for instance, which is very, very normal in Colombia. And so that's, I mean, I, mean, I, I won't go at, about it at length, but that's an area where, where I, do, I used design techniques to just research a, a legal issue that would have been approached in a completely different fashion. Mm -hmm if I were to tackle it from a comparative law perspective or even from an empirical uh, legal research perspective. The other area that we're doing that I just mentioned briefly are smart con smart contracts from the insurance sector. I mean, usually what you just do would be to like write a long paper, uh, we're do you're doing comparative law and figuring out how smart contracts have been treated maybe in the UK or in the US, how those principles might be applied here in Colombia, what are the constraints around the legal system? But the fact is, until you actually build a smart legal contract, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so that's when I switched significantly. And that's why we're just prototyping how the smart contract would be built and how it would work and where would it get the data and to which systems would it get, uh, would it connect to. And by building the system, that's how you're going to understand the legal issues of that new artifact. Otherwise, it's just impossible. There's no way you can figure out everything in advance. 
Yeah. And, and the third one, uh, again, the Dominican Republic, uh, instead of doing just, again, traditional comparative law research around what's going on in different areas from a comparative law perspective, saying, oh, we should change the procedural code and maybe learn something from Finland or for Singapore or from Colombia or from whatnot. We're just saying like, guys, let's try to think from first principles and figuring out and figuring out where do we first, where are there good areas of opportunity so that we can actually do an intervention there. And that once we find a good area, how can we explore that in a way that's responsible that we can be in, I mean, we have a, a whole narrative in the lab around responsible innovation in access to justice and where we can actually make sure that we can, uh, what we call tropicalize any solutions that we find in other areas. So for instance, we, we found a great app in Australia called Amica, which was developed by a design firm in, in conjunction with the, with the government. Uh, we want to see if we can do something like that, but of course we have to adapt it completely to the realities of the of the Dominican Republic, and the fourth one where I'm where where I'm uh, and I was as I mentioned, I'm doing a lot of work on uh, regulatory sandboxes in Colombia, and that's an area where, where if you're trying to come up with a new set of regulation from scratch, again what what's usually done is that in Colombia we would look at uh, so how does the regulatory sandbox in the UK look like, or how does it work in Singapore. But when you ha don't have a regulatory sandbox, for instance, for access to justice, you have to create it from scratch. And the way that we're thinking about regulatory sandboxes in areas where they don't exist right now is by using first principles and doing with design research first, and then coming up with the legal framework once we really understand what is it that we need, want to mm -hmm. test in a specific sandbox. Yeah, so what is a legal sandbox? Can you open up that concept a bit Sure. More? So regulatory sandboxes are uh, legal frameworks designed for companies to experiment uh, by asking a specific regulator to, uh, to make more flexible the regulations in a given area so that they can try it out and that the and both the, the company and the regulator can learn whether it makes sense or not to relax that regulation. And instead of doing that, I mean, uh, in a like binary fashion, like take it out or not take it out, what happens in the sandbox is that you apply and you ask for a permission of, let's say three months to test it out, to test out what you want to do in a control environment. So let's say you want to test out a new way of onboarding clients in the financial sector. Uh, and you tell the regulator, hi, I need, to, I need you to relax A, B, and C for three months. I'm going to do this pilot with 50 users. I'm going to be telling you what happens at all times. And the regulator says, yes, yeah, sure, let's do that. And that way uh, you get three months to try it out. The company learns whether it makes sense and the regulator learns whether it makes sense. Why are our regulatory sandboxes important and why do they benefit from, from design techniques as well? Regulatory sandboxes are a way to prototype policy. Mm. Instead of just going the, the usual way of saying we're going to enact a specific regulation or we're going to um, to abolish it, the sandbox allows you to prototype. And, and what we're seeing is that in the, in the financial services sector, they have been developed significantly, but there are other areas where, uh, for instance, in entrepreneurship, in water, in water regulation or energy regulation, those type of sectors could benefit as well from the idea of prototyping policy. What's the advantage of using the term of uh, regulatory sandbox is that because that term has already been tested out in financial services, 
when you go to a different type of regulation and you speak to a sandbox, you're already speaking in a term that they understand. If, if we were to say, hey, I, I have a new way to prototype policy <laughs> because they're not familiar with the idea of prototyping policy that generates much more resistance. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Great examples, Jose. And I think yeah. it really shows that you can apply design thinking into everything in legal. Yeah. And it's so inspiring to hear that there are so many concrete cases already existing around there where, where this kind of doing has been applied for many years. So it should, it's not something that somebody just figured out that, yeah, let's do this, but it's, it's been done uh, a lot. Um, yeah. And there's years of experience behind it. Um, what kind of teams did you work with for those projects you mentioned? Like, um, was it just lawyers or designers particularly teaming together? So, or So to give you an idea, in the, in the crypto lab right now that we're doing in insurance, we're working with a team that has the chief experience officer of the company, the marketing director of the company, the head of product of the company, uh, two lawyers, and for my team, it's myself, uh, my team of designers, and the technical team from, from Goldchain. So it's very interdisciplinary because mm -hmm. for, for that specific project around uh, automating claims in the insurance industry, you really have to figure out the problem from both product, business, marketing, and a, a, and a legal perspective. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you're going to be missing the, the important part, like the big picture. Um, when I was doing the, my, my research at, at, at Stanford, I was doing the bulk of my research myself, but of course at Stanford, you have the benefit of speaking to very, very uh, like fantastic people. Sometimes, for instance, I, worked, uh, I was to jump into the office hours with David Kelly and just ask him for feedback here and there. Uh, of course, Margaret was very helpful. Lucy Rica from the Stanford uh, Center on the Legal Profession. And I also learned a lot from different labs, especially from the human computer interaction a laboratory where they taught me how to think about research through design, how to really use prototypes, which type of techniques might work better. And for the work of my work, I'm really, we're always working in multidisciplinary teams. Very rarely, I mean, unless I, I get hired just to like produce a legal opinion on a, on a, on a traditional legal issue, um, which is something that we of course do. That's when I would say I wouldn't usually use other teams, but in the bulk of my work, we were always working in multidisciplinary teams. That's very, very important. Yeah. Um, as we have addressed before uh, in this conversation, that the, it's important that the legal side and point of view is, is analyzed well and that it's really legal design, not just something design-ish without the real legal problem solving involved. And sometimes when we talk about um, legal design doing uh, and the multidisciplinary approach to, to the way of working, um, some people may raise the question that who has actually the, the best knowledge or skills to do legal design that, for sure, we need lawyers to be involved, but who else? Like what other professions could and should be interested in, in doing legal design? Or if we're now talking about legal research, particularly, then um, 
what kind of team would be ideal in your view, Jose? I mean, I, I really think I really think it depends on the type of project. It's different mm -hmm. where where the type of project is actually coming out with a new product, for instance, for access to justice. If you're going to create a new type of web app or web service, then you really need like a, a full-fledged product team uh, with engineering, design, uh, someone who, who's conversant at project my product management. I'm sorry. If you're going to do public policy, it's always great to bring. Uh, folks who are really experts in the theory of regulation. For instance, for my work on legal design and open banking, I'm, I'm working with a, a very close friend. He has a PhD in Oxford uh, in regulation, actually, uh, because we want to make sure that we have like the best aspects from the from the literature around what has worked in regulation mm -hmm. or not with, with some great design, design work as well. Uh, if you're just going to be doing contract redesign, I think that working with a great graphic designer is very important. Mm -hmm. And someone who... who enjoys working with lawyers, uh, which is not very easy to find. Um, <laughs> but, but if you're just going to do contract redesign work, uh, so some, someone who's great at graphic design, maybe service design, if you're actually expanding the scope of the, of the engagement. Uh, the thing really is that, or what I always try to keep in mind is the, like, so that this school has a principle called radical collaboration, mm -hmm. uh, which is all about being mindful about which other types of professions can you learn very significantly from and which other types of individuals or modes of thinking. And I think that that's what we are going to have in mind. I mean, when I, when I think about legal design, I always divide it in different types of buckets. One is, for instance, like uh, contract and information visualization, access to justice and the creation of artifacts in that front is different, policy is different, uh, just doing legal research for design, which is all about exploring the future is different. And depending on the type of project, you might um, organize the team uh, in a different fashion. Yeah. Um, when thinking of, if somebody now is thinking of becoming a legal designer, maybe a lawyer, or maybe a, having a designer education, and thinks of like how to how to make such teams, like where to start from, if if you have maybe a, some project in mind that you would like to start to work on with or somebody offered you a case to solve, then um, where to find that team, like <laughs> the right people? <laughs> like what have kind of experiences you have from this, Jose? Uh, I mean, I going back to what I was saying that you, you don't always have to, for, for def, depending on the project, you don't always have to mention that you're doing legal design. Mm -hmm. Uh, and in order to get people on board, you might it, it might sometimes just be better to say, hey, I'm looking for a, I mean, I have a big problem to solve and I'm looking for a multidisciplinary team. Uh, hopefully I'm looking some, for someone that has a, a great design perspective. Would you be interested in helping me solve this, this type of problem? I think that's a very easy way to engage people mm -hmm. uh, rather than saying legal design. What I've, what I've seen a little bit is that when you say legal design and you want to bring someone to work with you on that they immediately feel that it's because it says legal at the beginning yeah. that they don't have a role <laughs> to play yeah <laughs> uh, whereas if, if you say to someone hey we're going to redefine an experience mm -hmm. we're going to think about how to communicate differently with contracts we're going to figure out how to do the strategy of the legal department differently instead of phrasing it as a legal design project, but rather as a broader project, that works better in bringing people on board. Mm -hmm. Good point. <laughs> yeah. 
So, Jose, uh, you have done this for a decade now, or maybe even more than 10 years. And that's a long time when we think of legal design. But then again, um, well, I love legal history and I, I'm annoying and I try to find historical aspects on everything. And I think that in a way we can think that legal design has existed for hundreds or even thousands of years. Because, um, well, now that we've been doing some research for the podcast, we've seen that there have been instructions and demands on making law more understandable throughout the centuries. I mean, uh, we saw some King's order from the UK back from, I think it was 1400, and then in Finland back in 1789, some of the legislation was written in a poetic form just to make it more understandable. And uh, even though that legal research and lawyers, we are focusing on the past to look at answers to solve today's problems. This is something that we seem to have missed. I mean, there has been the demand to simplify and comprehend the legal systems and services, but somehow we're still at the point that everything is complex and we're talking about we're talking about making things more human and making things more easy and emphasizing the access to justice. So um, from your point of view, why does it seem that the legal industry is now ready for such a change that we will focus on the future instead of the past? I think that the pressure that's coming from the transformation that the different industries are going through is what causing the legal profession to reinvent itself. Uh, and that's why it's like the right time to, to bring legal design into the conversation in many aspects and, and not only legal design, but just the, the whole idea of transforming the legal profession in general. Yeah. Um, all of the professions in the world and all of the industries are transforming. They're becoming more digital. New business models are shaping up every day. New types of services are created day in, day out, the amount of startups all around the world trying to figure out how to change the world is is amazing. And I think that this uh, volume of change really just puts the lawyers in a position where if they resist change or if they don't do anything, they it, it just makes them look uh, to society. I mean, the society would just look to the lawyers as just basically as archaic and primitive yeah. and, and no longer like a very, very necessary evil. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and basically like, uh, it's almost embarrassing if you mm. don't want to figure out how to transform yourself in this age. And I, I think that that type of social pressure created by the different industries, it was causing lawyers, uh, lawyers to change. And also just a, a new generation of lawyers and, and this new generation, it doesn't have to do anything with the age. But it's just a community that's forming a, a global community, such as what we're doing right now, mm-hmm. uh, where lawyers, where some lawyers are just really committed to practicing differently and, and democratizing the rule. The, I mean, not only access to justice, but the, democratizing access to the legal system in general. Yeah. Um, it's been an interesting discussion, and I have a lot of thoughts in my mind to reflect later afterwards this. I, I should have made like written notes or something. 
Nina, um, it's a good thing that you can listen to this one oh, afterwards. That's, that's, that's true, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, to to summarize our discussion, um, maybe you said something, uh, answered this question just just like a few minutes ago, but let's still do it again. Um, why do you think we need the design approach in in legal research? Like what what value does the design approach bring to finding legal information or creating new legal information? Sure. So I think that uh, a design approach will, it's going to help us come up with better questions, uh, which is very important when you're doing research. It's also going to give you a, a new set of tools and methods to research facts and to understand situations and context better. I, I think actually, if we were to like really geek out on legal research, I think that design think it's a great complement to legal sociology, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and I think it's the future of empirical legal studies. Yeah. When we're doing research through design, uh, but it basically gives you a, a new type of set of tools to to do research differently and to understand context better. Um, and I also think that legal research for certain areas should move from writing to writing and building at the same mm -hmm. time. Uh, and lawyers, we're not used to build and design just gives us a, a, a great set of tools to, to start to build more. Mm -hmm. um, and lastly, uh, and tied to this idea of building for, for many of the challenges that the different countries are facing, like, I mean, COVID, water scarcity, how to make the, the not only access to justice better, but the legal system simpler. Uh, the fact that design has been a profession that's specialized in making stuff useful and, not, and, and how to make it work better, I think that that type of, of skill set and mindsets uh, are going to be very, very helpful for lawyers really determined to improve the legal system. I think what you just said, that I think in, in legal academics, And when we're talking about legal science, one of the problem or the kind of classical questions has always been whether legal science is actually a science. And, and some people have had difficulties to argue for, for legal science to be like a pure science in a way like natural sciences are. But what you just said that actually legal design can give this um, new quality for legal science to be really an empirical science like the other sciences are like we we don't we can really look at the world to find out what really are the facts we need to take into account and how to adjust our legal thinking and problem solving into in those facts and I think it really only like you said it it, it improves it It doesn't fight with, it's not in a war against <laughs> uh, legal thinking. It just wants to offer a helping hand and, and improve it. So I think this is something I'm gonna use next time when I, if I end up in, into your um, conversation where, where I really need to support and promote the design approach in legal research. So thank you so much, Jose, yeah. I'm very happy that uh, that you guys invited me. This has been a, a, an awesome discussion. I, I look forward to to, to 
listening to the recording as well. Um, the, the conversation has really like sparked a lot of ideas in my mind that I'd like to, to write about. So I really thank you for the opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, Jose, for joining us. It was really interesting. And I think we all love this discussion. Yeah. And thank you all for listening to the Legal Design Podcast. You are now in 41 different countries, which is mind-blowing for us. And for more information about us, you can visit our website at LegalDesignPodcast.com. And you can also follow us on our social media accounts on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. 